My name is Emily Hedrick, and I'm a sophomore here at Goshen, and it is my privilege to welcome all of you to chapel on this glorious and thankfully Friday morning. It's also my privilege to welcome the prospective students. I applaud you guys for choosing an excellent weekend to show up at Goshen. Um, make sure you go to kickoff, and if you're bored on Saturday, check out the relief sale on the fairgrounds. I don't know about the rest of you, but it's been a long week full of classes, work, and the general busyness that comes from being a college student. But here we are in chapel. I'd encourage you to take a moment to breathe. Let yourself slow down just for the next 40 minutes. And as I light this oil lamp, let it symbolize that you are here in this space for this moment of your life. Allow your presence to exist here with your fellow students and with God. Let's pray together, and as I finish the words of my prayer, I will leave a few moments of silence. Take them and use them for what you need in your life here in the present. Spirit of peace, let us feel your presence in the here and now. Be with us as the many paths of our lives collide for this moment. Help us to listen. Help us to rest. Help us to breathe. Amen. It is also my pleasure to inform you that today's chapel will include the faith story of our new resident director for Kratz and Miller, Heather Gertzen. If you haven't met Heather, you should. <laughs> She's awesome. I have greatly enjoyed getting to know her a little better in my first few weeks here, from her love of macaroni and cheese, to her mad skills at Dutch Blitz, to her calm demeanor and wise advice. She's wonderful, and I'm so excited to hear her faith story today. But before we do that, we're going to take some time to focus and wind down a little from the week. Maria and Nate will be leading us in a time of worship. I'd encourage you to use the time for what you need spiritually, whether it's to fully enter into worship or to use the time to reflect and be silenced in the presence of your fellow students and faculty. Let's stand.
Holy, holy, 
you God and I just pray that you'll be here with each and every one of us watch over our hearts today open our hearts and open our eyes to the words that um, you'll be speaking to us today through Heather God and I just pray that you'll be with her speak through her and let us hear what the words that you want us to hear today Lord in your name we pray amen 
How's everybody doing? Great. Hi, my name is Tavo. Um, I'm a sophomore here. I'm also a RA on K3, and Heather's my boss, so she asked me to do this. Um, here we go. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things and things which it, with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? And do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, a powerful, a powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them that what was said in, in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our, our heart burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Thank you. Good morning. I'm going to say peace be with you and ask you to respond and also with you because I need a little bit this morning. So peace be with you. Um, I've been asked to share my faith story this morning and um, it has been edited for the sake of time. So anything that isn't included within this time, I'd be open to sharing with you later. Um, I would like to start by saying that I did not grow up Mennonite. However, I am a true Anabaptist. I was, I was baptized in the Catholic Church as a child wearing a crocheted gown that my great-grandmother had made. Um, I was sprinkled, and unwillingly so. Um, the pictures show me red-faced and screaming. Um, so my second baptism that came in a non-denominational Bible church when I was about 14 um, was a, a second profession of faith for me. Um, 
second, third, fourth. I had grown up knowing Jesus, and um, I have a, my college president at Taylor University, his name was Dr. Jake Hessler, and he used to say that faith is giving all that you know of yourself to all that you know of God. Um, so for me, that has been a continual handing over and surrender, um, and that, that is continuing for me even this morning. Um, the second time around in my baptism, I did know a little bit more of myself and a little bit more of God, um, and so that, that process continues. Um, the versions of Jesus that I was given as a child, um, I don't know how many of you were in opening convocation with Dr. Brenneman, but my Jesus represented a little bit more of the milder, whiter, blonder shepherd in the blue toga. Um, I was given a, a Precious Moments Bible for my first communion, and that was the picture, my illustrated Bible, that was the picture that I have of Jesus. Um, so it took a little bit of adjusting later in life when I came to see um, that not everyone had that perception. My life had actually been rather mild and innocent and unfortunately white until that point as well. Um, and so it reinforced what I already knew. But as I got out into the world and as I began to meet people whose life was different than mine, um, I started to wonder about who this Jesus really was. And I will say that while some people um, have a crisis of faith at that point, I don't think I doubted that the gospel was true. I don't think that I, I doubted that the kingdom was real or that Jesus um, had a place in it. I just knew that if this, these levels of darkness were also true, um, that something had to rise. And I, I trusted that that could happen. And so I dug pretty deep at that point. Um, a couple of the things that led me to question, I had the opportunity twice during my college experience to travel to Haiti and to do service there, and um, I think it was during my first trip. We had landed at the airport, and we'd gotten off the plane, and anyone who has traveled overseas knows that airports looked quite different, so we were wrestling for, <laughs> to hold on to our luggage and pushing through a crowd, and I got to the outside, and there were all these girls lined up at the fence. Um, and I smiled and I whispered bonjour on the way by um, rather naively, only later to find out what these girls were doing at that fence, um, waiting for tourists to come through, waiting for someone to purchase them for the day, for the night, for the hour. They were young, and as I look back on that, my heart was broken. Um, during my college experience, I also got to meet a friend named Kenneth, and Kenneth was a Sudanese refugee. Kenneth's family, his, his brothers and father had been killed in the war. His, mother's and his mother and his sisters had gone missing. And he began to explain to me the realities of rape camps and what happened to women who went missing in that culture. That also broke my heart. All of these things I was hiding away, and I didn't really know what to do with them. Um, but at one point, the summer after graduation, I was sitting on a pier in Seattle at a conference, um, having no idea where I was going or what I was doing. And a friend asked me, so what do you want to do with your life? And much to my own surprise, because I had not admitted nor articulated this to myself, I responded with, I want to work with sexually exploited women. And he looked at me, and I looked at him, and I said, I have no idea where that came from. 
the truth is, I had to trace back a little bit, and I, had, I could see at that point that God was placing seeds in my heart that I had not yet known had taken root. And so that fall, I enrolled in graduate school, master's, programming, master's program in counseling, and I spent the next two years um, reading psychological journals, um, dissecting everything I could find on areas of sexual violence. I learned a lot um, from books. I learned a lot from reading. I learned a lot from friends that I met along the way. And after graduation, I began to work with women in private practice settings and group settings that had been sexually abused as children. And all of these things God was using um, to teach me what, it, what the gospel means um, to the broken. So, I had, to, I, had a, I had a vision for what all this meant, and it meant that I was to go to Cambodia, some beautiful place with beaches and bungalows, and I was going to wear long skirts and sandals, and I was going to love women there. Um, I was actually invited to do that, and at the time I got really scared because I realized I had no idea how to start a ministry to women in prostitution. Um, so I decided to take a four-month internship instead, detour by way of Bolivia, at which point um, I got there and I realized Bolivia is not all tropics. Um, El Alto is at 13,400 feet, so any of you who have climbed 14ers know what I'm talking about. Um, we lived in the high, high plain, and it was cold year-round. There were no opportunity for skirts and sandals, and there were no beaches. Um, but I got there thinking at first that this was going to be a stop, and then one night, Early in my trip, I was taken um, to this hollowed out warehouse of a building that would later become our dropout center. And I was taken up to the third floor to the corner, not yet bathroom. And my friend asked me to peer out this really small window and look down. And he said, that's the right red light district. And from there, I could see a very dark street, some red lights, and a lot of traffic, foot traffic, men. And in my heart, in one of the few moments that I he have heard God speak almost audibly, he said, this is it. You don't have to go any further. And so I made arrangements, um, came back to the States, sold my car, um, wrestled with God a lot about what that meant, and eight months later, I went back. Um, and it was in this context that I learned to see Jesus, the incarnate Christ, the Word made flesh, and to know him like I had never known him before. Part of it was sheer desperation in a cold, oxygen-deprived state, living among the poor, single, without language. Um, I was desperate, and in situations of desperation, God is near. Um, the other part that allowed me to see him so closely was that the parables, the word of God that I had come to know, um, we say in Spanish, they were in vivo. It was live before me. My neighbors were literally shepherd children. Um, we shared public transportation with drunk men. We had opportunities. Um, at this point, I feel like I should introduce my husband because about a year into my stay, having surrendered myself to the life of a single missionary and all of that meant, um, this farm boy from Nebraska showed up and ruined my whole holy plan, really. <laughs> and so I, um, Wes and I and God worked through what we thought our callings were separately. 
um, and he spoke to us together, and that was powerful. But one thing I want you to know about Wes, which might not be the first thing that he wants you to know about him, is that he is amazing with drunk people. Um, we have traveled on many buses early in the morning and on ferry boats with very, very, very drunk, usually men, who in their state are um, very affectionate and kind and close talking. And Wes is a great listener in general. Um, at that point, when I get close to those people, they make me really uncomfortable, and so I tend to move away. Um, you need to see Wes in this situation. He is so sincere. And people who are making no sense at all, he will stay right with them. And if they start, like, putting their hand on his inner thigh to tell them that he, like, I mean, close touch, he doesn't flinch. It's amazing. Um, and as in many cultures of poverty, alcoholism is rampant. And so Wes had many, many, many opportunities to show the love of Jesus to the, to the inebriated and intoxicated. Um, so we had these opportunities right before us. We shared lunch tables with women in prostitution. Um, the scriptures became very alive to me. I felt like I knew the characters that Jesus walked with. Um, the Beatitudes made sense in a whole new way. The meek will inherit the earth. Um, we read that and we saw the land wars that were going on around us and that made sense. Um, if ever I've known a literal way of living and understanding the gospel, this was it. We walked brothel corridors regularly. We prayed with women in their places of work and we celebrated their kids' birthdays in our living rooms with Kool-Aid and chocolate cake. Um, we attended funerals of girls murdered in their brothel rooms. We invited a woman to live with us. Eliana is in her mid-50s and she had prostituted for nearly 40 years. So six months into our marriage, we adopted a 57-year-old woman. Um, for those of you who know the psychological, the psychological implications of sexual violence, um, her emotional maturity was a bit stunted. We felt like we had a teenager. She would slam doors. She would threaten to leave. And Wes and I would look at our, we, I mean, in our mid-20s, six, six months into our marriage, we would look at each other and say, what, what did we do? Um, together with Eliana, we read the book of Exodus. And we talked about the freedom that came to the Israelites. And she very, very, very easily recognized her own freedom in that. And from Exodus, I claimed the song of Miriam. I have a tambourine in my office. If any of you have the chance to stop by and see it, see it um, there's a verse in Exodus 15. And it says, and Miriam the prophet took a tambourine in her hand and she danced with all the women she danced all the women with her, and they sang this song. And it goes on to sing, she goes on to sing. Um, and I held on to that promise that someday I would get to dance on that street with those women. Um, the work was, felt impossible, but it felt holy. And I thought we were doing it all right. Well, I thought we were doing it mostly right. We became very tired. It cost us everything. Um, we were poured out, burnout, spent. We had been fighting an insane battle for years, and we ourselves needed reprieve and rescue. So a year ago, with an insane amount of prayer and pain, we decided to walk away. The reasons for that are long and somewhat painful, and I haven't even made sense of them yet. 
um, but we did leave. And so this calling, this very passionate piece of myself that I was once so sure of and held so tightly, it slipped. And with it, a lot of my certainties. Um, I had known my place in the kingdom. I, had, I felt like I had failed my calling at that point. I had disappointed supporters. And somewhere in there, I felt that I had disappointed and failed my God. And so what do you do at that point? Um, I'll tell you what I did. I collapsed. Um, we moved into a farmhouse in the middle of Kansas. Uh, we sat by a fire and we stayed with friends who were willing to take us in our broken state. We tried organic farming and let the dirts, the plants, the weeds, and the squash beetles serve as our therapists. Um, I stared at an icon that I have of Jesus and I asked a lot of times over and over, who are you and what happened? How did I miss it? Um, I did not doubt that God was there, but I doubted my capacity to hear him. I wondered if I had heard him wrong this, all this time, and if I had, what I had experienced was real. Had I made it all up? And if not, if Bolivia and the women and the gospel and my call to all of it was real, why was I in Kansas? I felt like I had misstepped and I still couldn't figure out where. I was convinced that whatever I missed most definitely compromised my capacity for relationships with Jesus and maybe in general. I could not trust my experience. I could not be trusted. We happened to return to Bolivia from Bolivia um, in time for the Lenten season. And at our church, we did a lot of um, meditation on the theme of holding on and letting go. And so during that time, I tried to figure out what I was supposed to hold on to and what it was okay to let go of. And on Easter Sunday, I was asked to read the passage that Tavo read this morning. And in that passage, it says he was after a long disillusioned conversation between the disciples and this mysterious stranger. It says, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And the very next line is, and he disappeared from their sight. This verse troubles me. I didn't choose it because it's my favorite. I chose it because I don't get it. I don't get why in the moment <clears throat> excuse me, that Jesus was recognized, he chose to disappear. Why is it that when we just feel like we're starting to grasp, does he move away? I feel like a very dangerous interpretation of being Christ-centered, a theme that we hold on to, is one that I tend toward, and so I want to share it with you. I think I have sometimes have this picture of a bullseye, and I feel like if I can get the formula just right, if I can get the form just right, I will hit Jesus in the center. Um, and I'm coming to realize that that's not right at all, that his center has nothing to do with me hitting it. Um, he will not be pinned. My, he will not follow my orbit or my understanding of, of it. He calls me to follow him. I hold on to him, but I don't get to hold on to my own worlds or my own understandings. In the weeks that followed Easter, <clears throat> I was given a blessing by my pastor. He took my hands, and in my right hand, he made the sign of the cross, and he said, a love that cannot be earned. In my left hand, he made another sign of the cross, and he said, a love that cannot be taken. And then he put my hands together, and he said, the Father's love for you. This is still something that I'm learning, 
in belief and in practice, that my love cannot be earned, that my love cannot be taken, that the Father's love for me is mine, and it does not depend on me. The meek will inherit the earth. Um, and this brings me here to you. Um, I arrived on campus a couple weeks before the rest of you. I'm still learning to find my way around, and I'm learning to, and hoping to recognize Jesus on these paths, on these roads, and around these tables. I'm here because I believe that this work is also impossible and holy. I believe that our ventures into Christian community, into peace, into love, into justice, into loving one another, into truth, are worthwhile, and I want to walk this road with you. I want to find Christ here. When I got here, one of my first days, Bill Bourne um, shared with us a devotional, and he read from Ecclesiastes 3, and I will just share verse 14. It says that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. He does it so that we may revere him. It does not depend on me. I would ask you, um, I, actually I want to offer, if at any point today or next week or any time you see me and you would like me to give you that blessing, I would love to share that with you. So stop me on the sidewalk, stop me in the dining commons. Um, I really want us to be convinced. I want to remind myself to be convinced that the love of the Father cannot be earned and cannot be taken. Um, I am so honored to be in this community with you all. I thank you for your embrace, for your shouts of love this morning. Um, I give it all back at you, and I ask that in this day and in our year together that it all may be that we would revere him. So thank you.
Go in peace, and may the holy God surprise you. Christ Jesus be your partner, and the lively spirit call your steps.